everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Anime Nostalgia Podcast. As always, I am your host, Usamimi, and for your listening enjoyment, this is another short review episode. If you're just tuning in for the first time and have never heard any of my review episodes, that's just my fancy schmancy name for a podcast episode where I revisit an older anime title I haven't seen in a long time, jot down some notes on what I might remember about it, and then I rewatch it to see if I still feel the same way about it as I did the last time I saw it. Not too complicated, right? <laughs> and no worries. If this kind of episode isn't your thing, I'll be returning with a longer episode next time with a guest with a more fleshed out topic and longer runtime for you all to listen to. It's springtime here in the northern hemisphere, and Easter wasn't too long ago. This time of year makes me think of your typical springtime and Easter imagery like little bunnies and baby chicks, eggs, and cute little lambs. While I was thinking of these cute springtime icons, something came to my mind. Hey, I know an anime about a cute little lamb. I had rented it when I was younger, seeing the video at my local video store, and thinking the art style looked vaguely similar to Unico. So imagine my delight when I saw the familiar Sanrio logo before the movie started. Yes, I had totally guessed right. It was made by the same company that did Unico, which I had fallen in love with a few years prior to seeing this. And for those who have seen it before, you're probably already guessing what title I'm talking about, but for those who haven't seen it, it's a little movie from the 70s called The Ringing Bell, or just Ringing Bell. But looks can be deceiving. I hadn't really paid attention to the movie's description on the back of a box as a kid. I mean, what kid really does, right? So I had no idea what to expect from the movie other than I thought it looked cute. And while the cover does feature a cute little lamb in a grassy field, this was not going to be the kind of innocent romp you might expect from a children's movie. While lambs had always been something I associated with more of Easter and biblical references rather than food, this movie didn't really have anything to do with the former, but maybe something to do with the latter, depending on how you look at it. Now, this movie is pretty old, I mean, it is from the 70s, and the major plot point revolves around pretty much one major thing, so there's definitely going to be a lot of spoiling going on from here on out, though you all most likely know where this is going already, and Discotech's DVD description on the back of the box pretty much spoils everything from the get-go. But I wanted to give you this pause as an opportunity to bail right now if you've somehow been able to avoid spoilers for this movie for this long up until now. Still with me? Okay, let's continue. Ringing Bell was a bit of a surprise for me back then. I remember feeling like I had gotten caught in a bait and switch. While Unico wasn't as lighthearted as I had expected, for the most part, it had a lot of cute characters going on adventures and winning over a bad guy in the end. Ringing Bell, right out the gate, portrayed a sad story of a little naive lamb whose mother dies protecting him, 
who then spends the rest of the movie becoming the very thing he hated in a misguided attempt at righting the wrongs of his childhood. It wasn't very happy or cute, and I remember feeling somewhat disappointed after watching it, though at the same time, it had left me with very strong feelings. I was probably too young at the time to properly process how I felt about it after it was all over. I was no stranger to death in animation, though. Galaxy Express 3.9 had actually been the first film I had seen at a very young age to show a mother being killed, a good year or two before I ever heard of Bambi. But since the entire premise of the movie revolved around this little lamb wanting to become a wolf like the one that killed his mother to exact his revenge, well, that might have been a bit too heavy for me at the time, as I had yet to see any kind of media that portrayed this kind of cautionary tale, let alone in the guise of a family movie that was meant for children. So, while it did leave an impression on me, it was a movie that I only watched once, then never picked up from the video store again, unlike the previous Sanrio movie titles that I had watched and enjoyed a number of times over and over. It wasn't that I hadn't liked it. Maybe part of young me felt guilty for kind of liking it? As I did tend to gravitate towards unusual and different, even back then as a child, but in this case, it wasn't a very pleasant film in regards to the things that happened to its characters. While I had learned from Galaxy Express that, wow, a story could involve a mother dying and how sad that was, this had taken it to a completely different place that I had never seen at that time. In fact, when this movie would come up in conversations with others as I grew older, a lot of people would confess that they weren't even sure that this had been a real movie that they had seen. Did I dream it up or did I misremember some other movie? It was one of those things that felt like it could have easily been something you thought was just a nightmare that you might have had and that couldn't have possibly been a real thing that I saw, right? <laughs> But now, after all these years, we finally have concrete proof that, yes, indeed, this was something that wasn't just a creation of our young collective imaginations. But it's been so many years since that one-time viewing of this movie. Could it still evoke some strong emotions from me after all of this time has passed? Well, now's as good a time as any to find out, so let's give the ringing bell another shot with a rewatch. The first thing that surprised me upon gathering info for this movie 
is that there seems to be conflicting information over when the VHS was first released in the U.S. I'd had it in my head that it was in the 80s, though most places online seem to have the release date as 1990, which would have meant I saw this film a bit later than I remembered seeing, if true. I did hear that this movie was also shown on cable TV, but I couldn't find any solid info on when or what year or what stations it ran on. It's entirely possible that I had seen maybe part of it on TV and then later the full movie on VHS, but I do know that for sure, at some point, I did rent it that one time. Starting up the film, one of the first things I noticed is that it was a lot prettier than I remembered it being. It was animated more like in a Western animation style than what you would usually expect when it comes to anime, which is actually pretty in line with the other movies Sanrio created during this time. All the animals in this feature look like they could easily have been from a big budget Western animated feature, with the sheep looking soft and cute, and the animals like bears and wolves looking very intimidating and somewhat sinister. There are no human characters in this film's cast. We never see any caretakers on the farm where Chirin and his fellow sheep live, but I actually like that a lot because it puts all the focus on Chirin and the other animals. This is their story and their world. A random farmer poking around would have just been a waste of screen time. The story begins with so much foreshadowing that if you're not a child, you'll immediately know where this is going. Chirin's free-spirited, playful antics, animated over lush, grassy fields of clover, starts the movie looking very happy and colorful, but as the sun sets on a full day of playing and Chirin's mother can't find him once the colorful film starts growing dimmer and darker colored amidst the setting sun, she warns Chirin of a wolf when she finally does find him. He sleepily promises that he'll be careful and watch out, still not really showing a care in the world, and by now, like I said, we all know what's coming, and are just patiently waiting until the wolf finally arrives, which is not too much longer after this. I was actually bracing myself for this part, vaguely remembering it being a bit unpleasant to watch. When the Wolf King, as he's known in the dub, finally does show up, it's violent, yes, but at the same time, it's not gruesome, thankfully. Most of what the wolf does is shown off-screen, either with shadows depicting him slaying sheep, or with violent slashes of red animation swoops that curl into sinister shapes. This is actually quite effective, because without showing a single drop of blood, we all know from these very simple visuals that the wolf is killing, and it's horrible. Of course, sleepy Chirin is still in a daze from playing all day and his mother interrupting his nap, so his mother leaps across him to protect him from the wolf's attack. At first, Chirin doesn't seem to understand what's happened once the wolf is gone and the sheep are left cowering in fear in the aftermath, but once Chirin realizes that his mother is dead, we get one of the most well-animated, heartbreaking faces in all of anime history, and you can't help but feel a little sorry for Chirin. This whole sequence is animated particularly well, with some amazing facial expressions, not just on Chirin, but the other sheep as well. 
<laughs> there's even this background sheep that you can see him foaming at the mouth in fear when the wolf shows up. It kind of stood out to me as weird, but also kind of cool a little bit in that scene because it's not something I would have expected to see. But this also brings Chirin to think out loud something that will basically be the overall theme of the rest of the film. Why did his mother have to die? And in such an unfair way. What had she possibly done to deserve this? Seeing how the other sheep did nothing to try to save her or him, Chirin basically realizes he's seen his fate. That all sheep will most likely be eventually slaughtered by this wolf king. And upon this realization, he decides that he won't live his life as a sheep any longer. He wants to become a wolf. This is sort of played for laughs at first, including a cute scene where Chirin tries his best to scare or hurt a very goofy-looking buffalo, and failing quite miserably to his dismay. Finally, he climbs up the mountain his mother had pointed out to him in the beginning of the film to try to find the wolf himself, to ask to become his apprentice and teach him how he can become a wolf himself. The wolf doesn't seem to take him seriously at first, but after realizing that Chirin would never leave him alone, he finally gives in. But he shows the cute little lamb no mercy, dealing out harsher and harsher life lessons as time passes, teaching him how to fight. Eventually, we see cute little Chirin starting to lose the soft, round features of his look from the start of the film, replaced by jagged lines of his once fluffy coat from all of the sweat and dirt of training to fight with the wolf, day in and day out. Soon we see tiny little horns on top of his head, making him look angrier still, until we get a sequence of him finally transforming into a fully grown ram and looking much more menacing than he ever did before, with no trace of the sweet little lamb he used to be, save for the little bell still hanging around his now massive neck. The bell, of course, is where the title of the film comes from, being the thing that his mother had put around his neck to keep track of him when he was just a little wandering baby. The final act of the movie revolves around how that now that he's finally grown into the strong, towering killing machine that he had dreamed of becoming, he was finally going to prove to the world that he was not just a weak little lamb any longer, that he had rejected the unfair destiny that nature had set on course for him in favor of this one, with the help of the creature who was his mother's killer. The narrator tells us that Chirin and the wolf become a team notorious for their ruthless killing throughout the countryside, though we never see anything more than the two of them racing through fields together. That is, until the pair make their way to the farm that used to be Chirin's childhood home. At first, Chirin doesn't seem to notice or care about this, as he goes on a grim killing spree, taking down every guard dog from the farm. Though there is no blood, we do hear a gruesome crack as Chirin breaks one of the dog's necks against the farmyard fence. That was a little shocking to me as I did not remember this part at all. But 
Once he's back inside the barn with the scared sheep and baby lamb that look eerily similar to how he and his mother once did, Chirin comes to the horrifying conclusion that, for all of his hard work, he had not become the strong, destiny-defying sheep to seek vengeance for his mother. He's become the very monster that took his mother away from him. And while he finally realizes this mistake just in time to save the sheep, not only from himself, but from the wolf as well, the sheep are terrified of him. Though Chirin has finally seen the light, he realizes it much, much too late, and the film ends as a bleak cautionary tale in the vein of Aesop's fables or the original Grimm's fairy tales. When I started up the DVD, I was a bit nervous at first to revisit this movie, but I think now that I'm older, I can actually appreciate it a lot more than I did when I was a kid. A lot of the deeper themes of the film might have gone over my head, and the grim story might have been a bit too much for me, as I'd probably been expecting a little more lightheartedness like I had seen in Sanrio's other movies that I had enjoyed at the time. This probably would have gone over better with me if I had seen the film when I was just a little bit older, or maybe even as a preteen. Although, much like how I feel seeing Galaxy Express at such a young age ended up shaping a lot of my tastes in media later in life, Ringing Bell might have also had a similar effect to me, although maybe not as strongly. The very heavy themes and strong portrayals of death might be a bit much for some, even if you're an adult, but if things like that don't phase you easily, it's a beautifully crafted film very much in the vein of Sanrio's other works. If you've seen the Unico films, or The Sea Prince and the Fire Child, uh, and A Journey Through Fairyland, you owe it to yourself to watch this movie at least once. The animation is very high quality, and it's an interesting film to really sit and think about thematically, even though it seems like such a simple premise at first. While this might not be as highly regarded as other Sanrio films, I'd totally recommend it to fans of some other oddly dark animated movies that were aimed at kids, much like The Secret of Nim or Watership Down. Ringing Bell was one of Sanrio's first feature-length anime films, and was originally released in 1978 under the title Chirin no Suzu or Chirin's Bell. For those who have seen some of Sanrio's other films, like the aforementioned Unico films, The Sea Prince and the Fire Child, etc., it might not be as polished or impressive as those later films at first glance, but for its age, there was a lot of work and love put into animating this feature. From the beautiful painted backgrounds to the fluid, expressive character animation given to Chirin and all the other animal characters, Ringing Bell might not be the most beautiful movie of Sanrio's catalog, but it's still incredibly well made and well worth viewing, especially if you're into interesting character animation. Sadly, due to its age, the picture isn't as sharp as it could be thanks to the masters Sanrio had. This gives everything in the film sort of a soft look to them, which is more apparent the larger your screen is that you're viewing it on. If you have a larger TV, 
it's going to be very, very obvious. If you have a smaller TV, you might not really notice it. It's not a deal breaker, though. It reminds me of that soft, diffused look of watching the original on VHS, so it actually kind of works with something this old. But even if the picture is not as crisp as you might hope, it still looks fantastic. The softness kind of adds this dreamy, childlike quality to some scenes that kind of work in its favor, since the original story was actually based off of a children's book, if you can believe that. The folks at Discotech really did work as hard as they could to make sure this movie looked and sounded as good as humanly possible. Speaking of sound, I watched the English dub of this movie for this rewatch, as that was the version I saw growing up. But the DVD does include the original Japanese language track as well for the first time ever in America. I watched a couple of scenes in Japanese just for comparison because I'd never seen it before, and I was actually really shocked at how close the dub actors actually sounded to most of the original Japanese cast. Whoever was in charge of that casting back in the day had a fantastic ear. The English language track actually sounds just a tiny bit sharper to me than the original Japanese one too, but I'm not sure if the English track was just preserved better or maybe recorded with slightly better equipment, but it's not terrible at all. Again, these are things that just come with these releases of older titles sometimes, so you kind of expect it to affect these things just a hair. Anime wasn't always made to last after all. The dub aged a lot better than I thought it would. While there are parts of it where it's apparent that they padded the script with some extra lines or exclamations or sounds where there were none in the original Japanese, it wasn't as out of place or distracting as it can be in other films. It fit just fine with the overall feel and tone of the movie, which was obviously trying to target little kids regardless of the grim undertones. There were a couple of lines that sounded unintentionally silly with their deliveries, but that's pretty standard for old dubs and kind of adds to the production's charm to me. There's more music in the film than I remember too, but it's not a musical. The few songs in the film are almost part of the narration, sort of operatic in a way, highlighting what's going on in the story at the beginning, the middle, and the end, with a couple of repraises in between for good measure. The movie was also a bit shorter than I remembered, clocking in at only 47 minutes total. I found out that this was probably because the movie was originally shown as a double feature in Japan with one of Sanrio's other animated films, The Mouse and His Child, which, as of this recording, has never been released on DVD here in the States, so hey, discotheque, maybe you should get on that too. <laughs> Speaking of which, like I mentioned earlier, Discotech's DVD release was definitely a labor of love, and you can tell. The Discotech team really put a lot of work into this release, and even though there aren't a bevy of extras on the disc, what is in there is really great. We get the aforementioned Japanese language track for the first time ever, as well as a nice little image gallery and an extensive commentary track from Mike Toole, 
who you might know from his fun and informative articles about anime from numerous places, as well as his various panels about anime he does on the anime convention circuit. While I'm usually much more interested in commentary tracks by the people who've actually worked on productions of the thing I'm watching, Mike had so many interesting tidbits of knowledge, not only about the movie itself, but about the people involved in making it. You can really learn a lot by listening to it, so if you have the DVD already and haven't given it a listen, I highly recommend it. As I mentioned earlier, the movie itself is based off of a storybook that was written by Takashi Yanase, who is actually the creator of the very well-known Anpanman character. I was actually surprised when I first learned about this a few years back, because Ringing Bell seems to be a very harsh contrast to the happy-go-lucky superhero made of bread that kids have been enjoying in Japan since the 70s. But in that aforementioned commentary by Mike Toole, he gives a bit of background and insight on Yanase's life and career that sheds a lot more light on his work and inspirations, which he explains a lot better than I probably could, so again, I totally recommend giving that a listen. Ringing Bell was directed by Masami Hada, who actually worked with Sanrio on many of their animation projects back when they were more focused on having their own dedicated animation studio alongside their character products. While he worked on TV and movie anime based on the more well-known Sanrio characters like Hello Kitty and Kuropi and Little Twin Stars, he also directed the feature films Legend of Sirius, released here as The Sea Prince and the Fire Child, as well as Fairy Florence, which was released here on VHS as A Journey Through Fairyland, he famously also worked as one of the directors on the Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland film. The music in Ringing Bell was composed by Taku Izumi, who is most famous for being the main music composer for the long-running Man anime franchise. He also worked on the various Gegege no Kitaro anime adaptations and wrote the iconic theme song for it that is still used for Kitaro adaptations to this day. Yukio Abe worked on art in this film, much like he did with the first Sanrio anime Little Jumbo, and the ending illustrations he did for the movie Bobby's Girl. The voiceover cast in both versions are very small, as the story mostly revolves around Chirin and the Wolf. In the English dub, young baby lamb Chirin is voiced by veteran Barbara Goodson, who you might have heard before as the English voice of Unico in the Unico films. Doris Lang in the streamlined dub of Vampire Hunter D, the old woman in the present short of Robot Carnival, and Yui Tanaka in the streamlined dub of Megazone 2-3. Greg Berger plays adult Chirin, who went on to do way more voices in video games and American animation than he ever did in anime, although he was Grimlock in Transformers, and, oddly enough, Odie in the old Garfield cartoons, which is pretty amusing considering the angry and dramatic performance he gave in this movie. Bill Capizzi plays the wolf, 
Although for this dub, they decided to put his voice through some sort of echoey filter for some reason, which is definitely not present in the original Japanese version. While he gives a good performance, other than this role, his others seem to mostly be bit parts, even outside of anime work. He was Galactor in G-Force, the second American retooling of the original Gachaman, as well as various characters in Robotech works. In the original Japanese version, Baby Chirin was voiced by Minori Matsushima, who was Candy in Candy Candy, Meat Kun in Kinikuman, and Sayaka Yumi in Messenger Z. The iconic Akira Kamiya plays adult Chirin, which, again, amused me greatly, as he's probably best known for playing Kenshiro in Fist of the North Star, as well as Ryo in City Hunter and Kinikuman himself. The late Seizo Kado played the wolf in the original, who was also Count Magnus Lee in the original Vampire Hunter D, Zenigata in the Fuma Conspiracy Lupin film, and Megatron in the original Transformers. While Ringing Bell might not have been as harsh as I initially braced myself for when I got ready for this rewatch, I can totally understand this not being the kind of movie for everyone, especially those who are sensitive to animal violence. While most of the bad stuff does happen off screen, there are some that, while never gory or bloody, do happen on screen, and that can be very hard to watch for some. If Ringing Bell doesn't sound like it's for you, then I definitely recommend trying out any of Masami Hada's other works, as I think he's a director that often gets overlooked when we think of long-time, very talented anime directors in the English-speaking world. The Sea Prince and the Fire Child is sadly the only other Sanrio movie of his available in English for purchase in the U.S. at the moment which is another discotheque release that I actually did a podcast episode about not too long ago. The Sea Prince and the Fire Child is basically a sort of fantasy take on the concept of Romeo and Juliet, although if you know Romeo and Juliet, still a tiny bit sad at the end. If you can find an old VHS copy of Journey Through Fairyland, that one is much less grim, though I still hope that someday discotheque might also pick up that film to re-release here, uh, to add to the Sanrio movies they've already released here, and, you know, so I can finally add that to my collection, too. And so, that about wraps it up for this review episode on The Ringing Bell. Next episode, I'll be back with a guest with a longer episode, as usual. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments on this episode or previous episodes, you can always leave a comment on the blog at animenostalgia.blogspot.com, send me a DM on my Tumblr at animenostalgia.tumblr.com, or just email me directly at animenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. You can find this episode or previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and usually wherever podcasts are. Just search for the Anime Nostalgia Podcast, or you can find direct links to them on the blog. And while you're there, you can always leave me a review if you're feeling generous. I appreciate the feedback, and I genuinely enjoy reading them. 
As always, I've been your host, Usamimi, and I will see you next time. Wow!